Okay, so the next story is Siren, which is, as Joven described earlier, about this transsexual who works in Orchard Towers as a prostitute. Okay, so to describe Siren, right, uh, it is a magical realist story, so there's a genre, magical realism, that weaves Singaporean myth and history, the Malayan part, into its plot to, I think, critique modern Singapore's antipathy towards queerness and diversity, which I feel are in fact more natural and essentially Singaporean than the constructs of normality that shape present-day society. Okay, so that was a very long sentence, but <laughs> I hope we can. I hope it makes sense that as we go through the story. I think it's quite an interesting story. Mm. Yeah. But, so but the story, yeah? More, yeah. I, I'm just trying to summarize what you said. Uh, yeah. As, as I understand it. So, um, I think at the crux of it, all, what you're trying to say is that Singaporean culture is more... Uh, it can be more defined as a, a hodgepodge of mm. uh, a diversity of cultures yeah. rather than just one uh, specific yes. like, culture. Mm. And that hybridity or queerness and diversity is actually like more natural than what we have in present-day Singapore. Mm. What, what do you mm. mean by what we have in present-day Singapore? Um, I mean, going back to the overarching idea of the short story collection, right? Like Ministry of Moral Panic. Mm. Like current in current day Singapore, I mean, if you compare it to uh the long long past, for example, with colonialism, with uh various with modernization, we've come to uh Im- impose on ourselves constructs like heteronormativity, um, gender binary, and also like even if we consider the uh theme of being a sex worker in the story, uh how we view sex workers, uh view them, uh through a you know, a condescending discriminatory lens. And so, like, in present-day Singapore, we have all these constructs that we, um, all these perspectives that we, they are so ingrained in us uh, because we're now, like, a modern society. So we have these clear distinctions mm. of what's good and what's bad. Whereas, uh, fundamentally, right, there is no such thing as, like, it is very hard to describe, okay? <laughs> but... If it, if it comes to your mind later, we can yeah, yeah, yeah. activate it, I guess. Like, it's just... <laughs> the the homogeneity that we are striving for is just not natural. Mm. Like, there's so much more diversity to humankind than we are willing to accept at this point, I feel. Mm. Yeah. So the story begins with an excerpt on the Malayan describing what the Malayan is. So... The Malayan is a mythical creature with the head of a lion and the body of a fish. So already the hybridity comes in and we yeah, yeah and we immediately like start to associate the plot with Singaporean identity and Singaporean history and the Malayan being like a combination of two things. So um if you were to adapt it to a human a human being, right, it would be something that we would scorn at. It'd be something that most Singaporeans would find odd, queer, uh, and thus outside of the norm and uh, deserving of being discriminated against. But isn't mm. it ironic that that is our national mascot? Yeah. Right, right. And uh, I, I think that what, what stood out to me about this story in particular is, in, in contrast to all the other stories about the Malayan, right, which try to, to mythologize the, the Malayan itself, uh, what was very striking about this one is that 
Amanda embraces the origin of the Malayan as an economic symbol. Because uh, right, right from the get-go, right, in the, the excerpt of the Malayan, uh, it's made clear that it wasn't like an actual mythological creature that, that uh, found its origins in story mm. or in some kind of uh, culture way back then, but it was made up by the, the Singapore Tourism Board. Yeah. And yeah, she she builds upon this very concept of the economics, the economic symbol of the Malayan as a commodity, right? Mao mm-hmm. is a, a sex worker. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Is there anything you want to add on to that? Or? Yeah, like when we consider the Singapore Tourism Board insight, thing it adds on to the irony that I've been discussing. The irony that we as Singaporeans are unwilling to accept queerness and diversity as embodied by the Malayan, but it is something that we market to outsiders. So yeah, that's the irony pala. And then when we talk about Mal, right, Mal being a, a prostitute, um, he is described as being local and exotic and to provide an experience to foreigners. So I think when we talk about local and exotic, it's like, yeah, we're selling Singapore, we're selling, we're selling something unique to foreigners, and which is the hybridity of Singaporean identity. I mean, like, when foreigners come to Singapore, they are always awed by the multiculturalism of Singapore, by how diverse our social fabric is. But yet, as a country, as a nation, we are so characterized by conformity and uniformity. So there's this, like, double... I wouldn't... Is it double standards? I don't know, but it's like... But we are willing to sell to the to the outside world is something that we aren't um, accepting ourselves. It's like an image that we portray to others. Mm. It's not and it's not something that we truly live by. Yeah. Like like hypocrisy, yeah. Yeah. I mean like when we sell multiculturalism, uh is that something we truly already have in Singapore? Like do we tr- truly have racial harmony? Or is it just something that we portray in a very manicured way to foreigners to show that oh we are so good at this and this is something you don't see in your countries. But then, like, if we look inwards, if we start navel-gazing, maybe do we start realizing that we're actually hypocritical ourselves and we're not willing to accept that actually we're not that harmonious. We actually harbor prejudices against each other. We actually look down on certain people who do not belong to the majority group. Yeah. So that Mm. hypocrisy, the irony, is something that uh, is already present from the start of the story for me. Mm. And then uh, I think before we carry on with the discussion, I feel it important to also uh, foreground our discussion with mm-hmm. uh, the notion that we can read this story from a post-colonial lens as well. So, of course, acknowledging Singapore's uh, colonial identity. So, mm. the the Malayan being half lion, half fish, and I will reckon that uh, the lion in, in this case and in this story represents the the British and the fish mm-hmm. represents um what Singapore was before the British. Yeah. Uh maybe the idea of a fishing village, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we through the image of the Malayan we, we see that Singapore culturally, uh physically as well is an aberration of both its I dare say Malay heritage. Yeah. And also its colonial uh past. Mm. And I think that's something that we can 
continue to consider as as we move on with the story. Yeah. Do Do you wanna go on? Um. Okay. Yeah. So carrying on about Mal, right? There's this episode in school when he is bullied quite um horrifyingly by his classmates. So, uh, how do I describe this? I think there was there were rumors that he he didn't have a normal penis. Is it? Yeah. Oh yeah, the rumors that he didn't have a normal penis, and so like his classmates wanted to strip him and then inspect his genitals in the toilet, and then like mm. prior to that incident, he had always tolerated being bullied, but it was that incident when he like completely broke down, and afterwards he his father pulled him out of school. For me, the bullying scene was really really vivid. Like the description, Mal was sobbing, snot entering his mouth, and I felt a lot of pity. For him, yeah. But then, when you consider things from the angle of the majority, just the group bullying him, they said things like, "Your father is a lion, your mother is a fish. Lion head, fuck the mermaid. Out comes the freak." It's so naive and childish, and it really speaks to how like people who discriminate, people who harbor prejudices, actually really uncritical and almost like childlike in their in their beliefs and thoughts. And there's another sentence which is like, here in Singapore, we are brought up to call a spade a freak with such backhand ease. And my interpretation of this sentence is like, in Singapore, because of how we are pressured to fit in, although it's not unique to Singapore for sure, we are acutely conscious of people who are different. I mean, for example, homosexuals, people, boys who are effeminate, uh, girls who are too masculine. Uh, and then we ostracize them, disregarding their feelings. Yeah, so that's that's what stuck with me when I read the bullying scene. And of course, like I like to put a disclaimer that of course Singapore isn't unique in this. And I, to be honest, I feel like other countries mm. are much worse when it comes to uh, conformity and bullying. Yeah, mm. that's all I have to say uh, for the bullying scene. But it does establish the the theme. Of being abnormal, falling outside the norms, and how the majority group responds to that, which is also like an overarching theme for the entire collection. And I think we can jump straight to uh, Mao now becoming a, a sex worker. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> so during the school bullying episode, the narrator of the story actually felt some sympathy for Mao, right? Yeah, felt some sympathy for Mao, but then I don't think he did much to help Mao, did he? I I don't think so. No. Okay, yeah, and then like many many years down the road, this uh, narrator decides to visit Orchard Towers, and over there he bumps into Mao, and mm-hmm. uh when he's at Orchard Towers he bumps into Mao, and then okay Mao teases him, yeah, uh, yeah sort of. in order to procure like uh sex lah, to be paid for the service. But then, um, as I quote, the bouncer is an elbow away and the apparent pub crowd will have their collective gratification of seeing Mao let out by the arm in a moment. Freak, someone says, loudly enough to cut across the bus of the room. But just before the bouncer taps Mao on the shoulder, I pull him to me. His waist is at once taut and slender. The bouncer's raised hand falters. Everything is okay here, I say. So this moment like contrasts. Uh, quite sharply with the bullying incident when the narrator didn't really stand up for Mal and defend him. Because right now, when confronted by the hostility of the crowd, the narrator actually decides to do something to protect him. 
and that is to put his arms around him to signal that um, the narrator actually wants to have sex with the transsexual. And at this point, it's interesting also because instead of attacking the person who wants to like, have sex with a transsexual, which is I don't know, something taboo, right? Uh, just mm. because the narrator is someone normal, suddenly it's okay and they're like safe now. And I think this speaks to the importance of allyhood. Uh, coming from a queer angle, it'd be the importance of straight people being there for uh, their queer friends because ultimately straight people do have much more influence over other straight people in society. And so like, yeah, I mean, it's quite, it's quite an obvious point. Uh, but yes. Mm. My my question here is, uh, what what do you think influenced the the narrator's change of heart? I'm really not sure. You know, it could really just be like him maturing. To be honest. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Or also like okay, because yeah. there's this incident as well, right? I mean, in the in the story, like I quote again, like, sometimes reaching out to try to satiate that curiosity with my hands. That's when he dreams of Mal. I think that was always the point at which I woke, a safety valve, as it were. I would always wake before I touched before I saw in a furtive sweat. Then the shame of going to the toilet, feeling the viscous sweat, washing and wringing my underwear. Okay, so here he has a wet dream. And I think the thing about wet dreams is that maybe from a Freudian aspect, it speaks to like repressed desires, right? So mm. perhaps, perhaps the narrator all along had some queerness inside of him. And so on the outside, since young, he's just like accepting what society is telling him that, okay, to be a guy, you must have a penis, must have a normal penis, uh, a lion and a fish is a freak, let's discriminate that. But perhaps deep inside, fundamentally, it is something that you are attracted to. It's something that you possess yourself, but something that you choose to suppress because of society. Yeah. And also, like, mm. that plays in the idea of, like, the hypocrisy of Singapore, not Singaporeans, but many societies. Lah. And, like, on the outside, we promulgate moral norms, right? But then, deep inside, we still have primal desires, right, and engage in so-called immoral behavior. I mean, where else does Orchard House exist, right? But it's just a side of Singapore that we choose not to acknowledge consciously. Mm. And like, the idea of that queerness perhaps always, having always resided in the narrator, goes back to the idea of queerness being natural to Singapore, and perhaps not even just Singapore, but like just, it exists in nature, you know? And it's just the way society has evolved that we have tried suppressing it, and ostracizing it. Yeps. Mm. And uh, actually now that we are talking about this, an idea just popped into my head where I think to, to add on to the to the context of this quote, the narrator was actually like wondering what Mao's penis looks like, if I'm not wrong. Mm, yeah. And I, I think we can draw a parallel here to the reader ourselves mm-hmm. and how many of us grapple with the idea of a Singaporean identity. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, I, I think when we were just discussing this, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what struck me was how maybe the very ambiguity, the very process of trying to find out what exactly that Singaporean identity looks like mm-hmm. provides us with a sense of pleasure, provides us with an occupation, mm. and it may even there may even be a a, a sense of like fetishization here mm. of uh, continuously pursuing this uh, ambiguous unknown identity 
yeah. rather than something that's immediately like clear cut. True. And yeah, true. I think that that goes back to your point about how we exploit that exoticism and that diversity mm. of of Singapore for our own entertainment and and, and pleasure. Mm. But on on the outside, we're all about uh, conformity, and we're all about rejecting that diversity. Yeah. Actually, when we talk about rejecting an essential part of our identity, right? I mean, we talked just we said just now that the Malayan is a hybrid of British colonialism, the lion, and perhaps like a personification of the Malay archipelago, right, in the mermaid. And I think also it's also like the rejection of our Malay roots. You know, I feel like if we talk about conformity, one thing that stands out for Singapore as compared to our neighbors in Southeast Asia, right? It wouldn't be the conformity when it comes to heteronormativity, but it would be how westernized we are. Mm. Yeah. And so I think that's something that Amanda was probably getting at in this story. How westernized Singapore is, how the development of Singapore post-independence, with the spread of English as the vernacular, and Malay being relegated to just um, a national language without it being like truly the national language, like a language mm. that is spoken by all Singaporeans, right? That speaks to how like we reject our Malay roots law, I think. Mm. Yeah. And and I think this also elevates our earlier discussion on how we utilize our exoticism for for economic value. Because it brings to question that very idea of exoticism. Is it something that truly local or is it exotic? precisely because there is an element of the Western in it. There is an element of something familiar to the Western peoples that we market ourselves to. Mm. So the narrative, like, there's two, par- there's two parallel narratives. So one would be the... Are they parallel? Okay, no, but there are two narratives going on. One would be the story of Mao, like narrative of rediscovering Mao. And then the other story is how Mao was conceived so this is like the magical realist part. Uh, was the male sailor having sex with this siren in the Malay archipelago? So the siren whispered, Siamia san, in Pigeon Malay. And mm. um, she sang, My world is your oyster. All it needs is one grain of sand. I found this sentence so beautiful, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and so they have sex, and the child eventually is uh, Mao. I think if we just talk about this hooking up into lewd, right? Let's go to the oyster quote. I mean, just to explain why it's beautiful to me. Mm. Um, yeah, go on. Yeah, because, okay, how are oysters made? It's it's a sand that eventually becomes a pearl, right? Inside the shell. <laughs> right. Right. And like, yeah. yeah, so it's, yeah, the sperm becoming the baby. Oh. Yeah. Mm. So, I don't know, it's so beautiful, man. Like, the oyster is already yeah. there, and the like her body is your oyster, and all it needs is your one grain of sand to like, make a pearl, a thing of beauty. Mm. And yeah, that's just so beautiful to me. Okay, whatever. Then <laughs> something else that stood out to me in the interlude in this episode lah, is the cunnilingus section. Like the male sailor decided to pleasure her <laughs> with his tongue. Yeah. Yes. And then she she found herself allowing this transgression. This this was something new and unexpected. So like this is an instance of 
the men casting away socially constructed gender roles and taking up the more so-called submissive and servile role, right? And mm. it's because of this transgression that eventually he doesn't die. Like, the siren chooses not to kill him. Instead, it's the siren dies and the child is born. Yeah. There's something really noble about the the sailor being willing to give up his position of power. And I think that speaks also to the power of sex being an equalizing field for mm. the parties involved. And it's also like a process where one can learn more about oneself, one's desires. And it's a very spiritual experience la, if we do away with societal expectations and societal roles. Mm. And and it's also quite interesting if we bring in the idea of colonialism again as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, conventionally, you would think of uh, colonialism as one where the colonizer dominates over the colonized. But in this mm. case, it's not much so. It's, uh, for the lack of a better term, a more symbiotic relationship between the mm. two. I give you something, you give me something. Mm-hmm. And what's also interesting is there's an escalation from the exchange being one that's more uh, uh, pragmatic. So it starts off with them doing this for to, to procreate, right? Yeah. Siren doing this to procreate. Then she hints, or she says that uh, when, when, when he performs Kanilingat, it's a transgression. Yeah. It's something new and like, unexpected for mm. her. So it jumps from the pragmatic to something that's a lot more yeah. um, emphasized <laughs> realm. Mm. I would say, yeah. I would, yeah, I guess. And I would say we see this yeah. also like in the Ballad of Alina and Nelly, right? Like the pragmatism of the marriage between Nelly and her husband versus the more pure and spiritual, transcendental love that she has with Aline. Mm. Yeah. And um, do you want to move on to yes, Mal Yes, Okay, after Mal and Narita have sex, Mal asks Narita to bring him somewhere. And I'm assuming it's like he drives him there or something. So I quote, mm. Following his directions, we reach a jetty. I've never been this far out. Surely this must be the southernmost tip of the island. Mal takes two fifty-dollar bills from the ten I've given him, tucked into his purse. Mal opens it and peers in, then hands over the money. He comes back with the cooler in hand and says, One more, please? Okay, so for me it's interesting that the quotes begins with following his directions. As with the sailor and the siren, right? Uh, there's a reversal in power dynamics. Over here, it is now... Mal, who is the wiser one, who has more knowledge of the place, and the narrator is allowing himself to be led, to to learn something that he hasn't learned before. And that also manifests in the part, uh, in the second sentence, like, I've never been this far out. So literally, it's Mm. geographically, right? But also, it's a part of his sexuality that he has never explored. So he's not been this far out. Surely this must be the southernmost tip of the island. And also, I just got this while reading, by the way. Like, okay, geographically, yeah, southernmost tip of the island. But also, like, anatomically, like, the southernmost tip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, oh! The family jewels. Oh, that's genius. Okay. Yeah, and, like, the prostate, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> let's continue. And then, yep. Mal takes $250 from the 10 I've given him, tucked into his purse. So, 
it's the money that he got from um doing the deed uh, at Orchard Towers, and then he goes somewhere with the money and comes up with a cooler, which we do not know contains what. And then he says, one more place. So at this point, the narrator is still left in the dark, and Maul is the one who knows exactly what he's doing. And so yeah, this reversal of power dynamics, this uh, humility on the narrator's part is something that I find quite noteworthy. Mm. Yeah. And also like simply being the southernmost tip of the island, right? Like so close to the sea. Goes back to the sailor and the siren episode. Because like an island in the sea, it conjures ideas of primitivity, of connecting with your inner desires. I don't know if you have read about Tristan and Isolde, but basically they were not supposed to be in love. Isolde is supposed to hate Tristan, but then while on a ship far away at sea, they drink a love potion by accident and then they like fall in love. Yeah. So mm. yeah, the idea of the sea being linked to human sexuality, to primitivity, to spirituality is something that um, I also identify in this segment. Yep. Mm. And I think if you move on to a uh, segment during the end of the story where Mao and the, the narrator visit uh, Mao's mm-hmm. mother, who's named Lionhead here, uh, I quote, his father is salivating like Pavlov's dog. Also, he has a heart on. You can see it through the thin, pale green nursing home pants. Mao brings the first oyster towards his father's waiting, gaping mouth, and the old man laughs at it. So, immediately over here, we are treated with a very uh, somewhat disturbing image of yeah. uh, uh, a lot, uh, an individual given over to basal desires. Almost like an He's, animal, right? Yeah, yeah and, and it is, he is literally an animal. He's mm. a, a very old lion. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think uh, going back to the colon, the, the post-colonial lens, the lion uh, represents the the, the colonizer, mm. and it represents that that the very image here represents the the colonizer's uh, very animalistic desire for the exotic, the mm-hmm. very animalistic desire to to conquer new lands. Uh. Mm-hmm. And of course, this also parallels the the, the earlier story of the lion head lasting after the siren. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also interesting because the the act of Mao willingly feeding his father those oysters, I, I would say portray the conciliatory attitude of the, the colonized towards mm-hmm. the colonizer. So in the same way that, that, that Singapore very happily uh, parades around its colonial legacy mm-hmm. And in the same way as how Mao or Singapore even uh, market themselves to the international crowd Mm. as a commodity or as a prostitute. Yeah, we see the parallel here between the the tourist patronizing Mao and his father uh, eating the oyster. It's a very, it's not just an economic transaction, but it's also a a sexual transaction. Mm Well, that's a very cynical view of the characters and the relationship, actually. Because <laughs> for me, really, this segment is, for me, is just like a really beautiful act of love, to be honest. Because, oh, I thought, like, I thought Mal, it was loving there, honestly. Really? 
But I don't know because like Mal and his father are both like outcasts and rejects, right? But like, but they've stuck together through thick and thin. The father, when he was bullied in school really badly, he pulled him out of class. And then actually, it's described in the story that they lived quite happily, like just fishing and doing things uh, by the sea. And afterwards, when Landhead is institutionalized in a home for the mentally infirm. Mal still cares for, still loves his father so much that he he's willing to perform sex work to earn money, and the money isn't like even just for himself. He he buys oysters for his father because he knows his father loves oysters. And actually, like for me, the father in this segment, right, he's actually quite powerless. His portrait is very, it's quite humiliating actually. So I don't really get the uh conquering vibes of like the co- the colonizer conquering the Malay archipelago for example if we if we view it as the co- the British lion feasting upon the Malay oyster whereas for me I didn't really view this segment uh through a colonial colonial lens it's more of the oyster being like a fresh product of nature and really it's just the father having a very natural desire for oyster like it's not something you need to rationalize it's not something that we think is normal, but it's something that's natural, and so it challenges our conception of normality. Is it something that's truly natural, or something that we want to believe is natural? Yeah. Hmm. I think I see where you're coming from, and I think that it's a valid point of view. Uh, for me, I won't say it's uh, like like colonizer conquering the colonizer, but it's more of a colonizer lasting after certain traits of the mm-hmm. colonizer, lasting after certain things that the colonized can, can offer him. For example, mm-hmm. like uh, sexual pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that Bao's relationship with his father was um, more, I would say, impersonal. Um, so because I, I quote, so the, the context here for this quote is that the, the, the father was actually looking for the for the siren, but found mountains. And yeah. the, the the narration goes, what would he do with this aberration of nature? He knew nothing of caring for a small living thing. Yet the closest he could ever get to her was this. So, I think over here, the the sense I got was that the the father took Mao and and brought tried Mao to Mao. recreate the siren. Yeah. To, oh. to try to recreate the siren because of Mao's uh, connection to the siren mm-hmm. the, the physical and familial connection to the siren mm-hmm. and I think going back to Mao's visit to his father I don't know, the visual image here is already a bit disturbing uh, like the image of uh, an old man having a boner yeah. in pale green nursing home pants mm-hmm. and I think there's also this description of Mao very mechanically putting on like black rubber gloves. Mm-hmm. So there's already this inkling of him wanting to have a sort of uh, physical distance from his oh. father and doing doing the whole oyster feeding thing out of uh-huh. a sense of familial bondage or mm. duty. Actually, I would uh, challenge than, the idea that this segment is disturbing because like it's only disturbing precisely because we are viewing from like our you know how we are conditioned in our society right 
like we're we're supposed to view types of sexuality that fall outside the norm as weird and disturbing. Mm. And like also when you mention the elderly men having a hard on, I feel that's something very normal. I mean, old people still have sexual desires. So why is it something that we find disturbing? You know? Mm. Yeah. But uh I, I think what the the other significant thing that was disturbing was the the image of Pavlov's dogs. Mm. Um I don't know. It, we see here someone who's deprived of his individual agency and, and discretion mm-hmm. and who's left to the mercy of, of his uh, animalistic his own, instincts, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's quite a I don't know, in my point of view it's a very like it's a very pathetic kind of pitiful image. But I feel that for me that pitiful image actually like summons sympathy for me. Mm. Yeah. Like, I actually feel bad for the father. But also the father seems to be happy when having the oyster, so good for him I guess. Yeah. Is it really so bad if he is um really pathetic position and like giving into animalistic instincts if he truly feels happy and at ease with like his natural desires. I wouldn't say that's a really bad thing uh, as compared to being unable to get the pleasure that you want. Of course, I'm not advocating for like just acting on your instincts impulsively, but like... Hmm. Uh, I, I think um, this debate that we're having uh, is actually a, a debate we had regarding the, the story itself hmm. and the, the themes that the story yeah. comes with. Because I didn't really consider the colonial aspect of the story. Mm. I was coming in more from the view of like queerness and how that is natural, but viewed as something anti-natural and something that is ostracized against in present-day society. So that's mm. the angle I came from. I think if we if we zoom out a bit more, uh, what what you mentioned about the the idea of the father just purely enjoying himself and you seeing that as something that's wholly valid and me seeing that as a, as a disturbing image. I, I think that's a question that the story wants to ask at the end of it all as well. Yeah. Right? Um, like, what we, are we willing to accept, right? Yeah. Do, mm. we, do we just sit back and uh, enjoy the, the, the pleasures that our diversity can offer us? So, for mm-hmm. example... In the the narrator's uh, sexual relations with Mao, or mm. should we also zoom in a bit more and acknowledge mm. the the very frayed history and the very frayed uh, economic relations that we hold with mm. the rest of the world? Yeah. In so I guess another identity. point that we kind of disagree on is what Mao represents, right? Because for you, Mao mm. represents Singapore, even present-day Singapore, am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas for me, it's not the case. Like, Mao really just represents um, something essential to Singapore, but something that we do not, that locals do not recognize or acknowledge. So the queerness, the diversity, the multiculturalism that truly exists, but we, that we do not truly practice or acknowledge. Like, for me, Mao mm. is the one who's being suppressed and repressed by... Um, present-day Singapore. And that's why mm. we have to like go to the south, the southern part of the island in order to, you know, reconnect with his father. Mm. Yeah. 
I, I don't think my opinion necessarily clashes with yours. I think mine is one that looks more towards the the messiness and the, mm-hmm. the baggage that comes with the past. Whereas mm. I think yours looks more into the, the present and the future. Mm. Then let's just move on to the final image in the story. So I quote, He dislodges it and extends the oyster before my face. He is small, by the way. I pause then bend forward to eat out of his hand. As my teeth graze the shell lightly, I remember that it is a living, breathing organism on my tongue. The oyster tastes just like him, and I swallow. In these sentences, again, for me, the humility of the narrator is quite striking because he bends forward, and even more strikingly, right, he swallows the oyster at the end. Even going back to like this, the erotic overtones of this part, swallowing is I would say it's an act of submissiveness. Mm. Yeah, it's associated with being submissive and servile. But if you take away the associations of like, okay, the weaker one, the one serving has to swallow, actually it's just you giving your partner pleasure. And I mean, fundamentally, that's what sex is about, right? You pleasure your partner, mm. your partner pleasures you. So I think the growth of the narrator is a highlight for me like, in this story. Because it goes from someone who, just like everyone else, rejects Mao's um, oddness to someone who accepts it and even recognizes it in, in himself. Uh, I think there is also a sort of meta-textual commentary to be said here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the very process of reading this story can be compared to a concept of like a sexual transaction because both of them use as forms of entertainment and especially for this story it features a lot of uh explicit mm. uh, sexual scenes right and yeah. it's true and just like through a, a sexual transaction we actually de- derive a, a sort of sexual pleasure from it mm-hmm. And yeah, I, th- I think if we look at the, the first half where the narrator is uh, more misguided and, and joining his friends in bullying Mao for his difference and for his diversity, and I, I think it also parallels how we as, as uh, Singaporeans tend to, to mock our own diversity and to mock our uh, colonial legacy. Mm. But, but through the process of reading the story and uh, as we get more invested in it and as you get more invested in, in the sexual scenes mm-hmm. we find ourselves actually clamoring for more we find ourselves asking for more yeah I find mm. we find ourselves actually reconciling with yeah that that, that our own sexual desires and mm-hmm. reconciling with both the the sexual and and the entertainment value yeah. that get out of reading the story mm. and I think it's also like the recognition that beauty exists in messiness, in the unorthodox, in the things that we don't truly understand at first as well. Yeah. Mm. I mean, like, and, when you read the yeah. entire short story collection, right, that's basically the point uh, of the collection. Like, we're supposed to see beauty in stories that, in narratives that we otherwise would suppress or choose not to entertain. And when we read Siren after reading about the myth of the Malaya and something that Amanda spins herself, the story of Mal and the narrator, we find ourselves actually fascinated by the story 
by our own history, by our the messy identity that we have, and we want to learn more about it. So like we're not simply just accepting that okay, Singapore is a fishing village and then a colonial state and then modern city state. Like not a clean cut narrative, but instead we want to learn more, we want to disrupt the narratives more, we want to see more of the stories that have been left untold. And that's why the the final sentence is so uh, poignant. Mm. Because uh, just as the oyster tastes like Mao and what he represents in relation to the Singaporean identity, the oyster also represents the story itself. Yeah. And as we read the story, we are just like the narrator tasting the oyster. Mm. And as we finally reach the ending, we stop reading and we swallow. I think that's all I have to say about it. Same. That's all I have to say. So yeah, I think that's about it for our discussion today. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed. We will be reading more stories from the collection. Yeah, we highly recommend you read the collection. It won a prize. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> bye bye.